You're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BG. Today on the podcast, we speak to Berta Aldridge, who wrote her book, Winning the Talent Shift, Three Steps to Unleashing Your New High-Performance Workplace. Berta gave some really practical advice on how organisations can use their HR practices to create a workplace that matches their company values. Berta gives some quite shocking statistics on how toxic leaders are impacting company productivity. Here's that conversation. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career so far, please? Absolutely. Ellen, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me and bringing this topic to the forefront. So a little bit about myself. I've spent my entire career in the financial services arena where I've held executive and leadership roles spanning really all disciplines of finance, including insurance, pension and investments, asset management, alternatives, and wealth management, where I worked my way from an entry-level management training position to the C-suite. And from an educational perspective, um, I hold an undergraduate degree in business finance, a graduate business certificate, and an MBA, Alpha Iota Delta, with emphasis in business strategy and decision sciences. And I've just recently left the corporate arena and now am serving um, as a C-suite advisor, speaker, and author with a mission to help fellow executives, you know, really remove these barriers to creating diverse, high-performing workplaces across the globe. And it's the author part I'd like to speak to you today about um, you recently published a book entitled Winning the Talent Shift, These Steps to Unleashing the New High-Performance Workplace. Can you tell me a little bit more about the book and some of the key themes? Absolutely. So the book's main premise is that if companies truly want to harness the power of diversity and create these high-performing workplaces with real bottom-line results, they must remove today's invisible barriers that are really prohibiting them from succeeding. And what I found in my research is that most companies either don't know that these barriers exist or they've accepted them as part of their ingrained culture. So unfortunately, most companies today are not succeeding with their DNI initiatives and winning the talent shift really explains both strategically and practically how companies can achieve success in five years or less. So it can be done. um, And I show companies, leaders, and individuals the steps to get there. There are so many points from that that I want to pick up and go into more detail. (laughs) But first of all, I read that your book started off as kind of a playbook for your daughter to be able to navigate the world of business. And that's amazing. What point did you realize that this could actually help a lot more people than your daughter? You know, yes. Um, what you read is actually true. Um, I originally wrote the core of the book for our daughter, Lauren. And, you know, for your listeners who are working moms and dads and have working mom and dad guilt, um, you'll certainly understand kind of the backstory. So, you know, I went through this period of time where I questioned whether I had given our son and our daughter the same amount of coaching and investment of time and insight that I had given to the over thousand plus people that I had led, coached, mentored, and sponsored in the workplace. And so I came up with this idea that I would write her a book. You know, it was the one thing that I could give her that no one else could. 
And therefore, it was written with a great deal of candor and authenticity, um, you know, really with the pure intention to completely expose these barriers and provide her the tools and wisdom to work through them. So that's kind of the backstory. So absolutely true. It was originally written for Lauren. Um, But to answer your question about when did I realize that it would help more people than just Lauren, I think really there were maybe two key tipping points. You know, the first one occurred when, um, as I was conducting the research, I would share the findings with my colleagues, my family and friends. And it was probably after about the 20th person um, that told me that no one else was talking about this, how important it was for other people to know this. And it would not only help our daughters and our sons, but our friends and our colleagues who are in the workplace today of all ages and also our friends of color. So as a leader, you know, that really struck a chord with me because I believe our job is to remove barriers so our people can achieve their highest potential. So that was the first clue. I think the second big clue was much more tangible. And it was when I reached out to a friend who had a contact in the publishing world and he connected me to this editor and they read my proposal and they were so inspired by the message that he provided me a contract within a matter of weeks. We fast passed the production and it was actually available in the marketplace within six months starts to start to finish. And anyone who knows the publishing world knows that, you know, there was divine intervention there that that never happens. It usually takes two to three years for a book um, to find its way on the shelves um, in a retail establishment. So first push was from my friends and colleagues. The second was this enormous endorsement from a global publishing house um, and a reputable publisher. We have quite a lot of um, offers on this podcast and I've never heard of it happening in six months. So that's <laughs> incredible. It, it was incredible. And, and I think it was just a sign that it, this message needed to make its way to, to people across the globe. So to dig down into some of the points from your book, um, you've mentioned invisible barriers a couple of times, and I was wondering if you could explain maybe more about what these invisible barriers are and maybe give some examples. Absolutely. So these invisible barriers, you know, there's no question. Let's let's start here. There's no question that companies, particularly post-2020, right, with George Floyd that happened here in America, that they truly want to create these diverse, high-performing organizations. But unfortunately, they are failing at the execution. So I spent a great deal of time researching why. Why, after 30 years of talking about diversity and gender balance, have companies failed to achieve the impact and success that they should have at this point? And what I found was the root cause was this overarching theme that companies are not adequately prepared to think, act, and lead differently. And it's because of these three main barriers. So the first barrier is that companies today are using a strategy called a groundswell strategy to achieve diversity and high performance. So what that means is they're hiring women and diverse candidates at the entry and mid-levels of the organization and expecting them to groundswell, to rise through the organization into leadership or more impactful roles with span of influence. And unfortunately, this is great in theory today, 
but it's failing in practice because here's what actually happens today. They get hired into the organization. We know now that women are promoted um, at half the rate of their male counterparts. They're passed over for, for their first promotion. We know that they will leave the organization at double the rate of their male counterparts, mostly due to bad bosses and lack of opportunity. So most organizations are hiring, but they're losing these diverse candidates. So this grand notion that we'll hire at the entry to mid-level and they'll rise through the organization over time is great in theory, but it fails in practice today. So that's barrier number one. The second barrier is one where these diverse and high-performing individuals of all genders and ethnic backgrounds in our organizations are failing to ascend through the organization because of primarily because of bad bosses and outdated HR systems that actually require them to suppress these innate characteristics that challenge a company's entrenched cultural convention. So this has caused unimaginable overcompetitiveness, toxicity, sinister tactics, such as targeting bullying and abuse that will take them off their otherwise upward trajectory. So these individuals are finding it difficult and they're, they're actually encountering many barriers uh, that are career, what I call career derailers um, within the organizations today. And this is really the heart of the research that I think most individuals, when they heard it, that's what they had visceral reactions to and said, you absolutely have to get this message out. So for the second key point, what I found in the research was that lower performers at higher levels are targeting bullying and abusing your highest performers 100% of the time. Women, 75% of the time, and men, 35% of the time. So if you are a high-performing woman, you are guaranteed to be targeted, bullied, and abused in the workplace and taken off your upward trajectory. And 70% of those who report the targeting to HR are not supported. And keep in mind, some of those are claims of sexual harassment. So barrier number two is these poor leaders in critical positions combined with an outdated HR infrastructure are not protecting the very people. We are hiring to increase the diversity of thought and value in our organizations. And instead, we're allowing them to be suppressed, bullied, and abused. So that's big barrier number two. And barrier number three is really the most impactful of all for those of us who are leaders or sit on boards or sit in the C-seat, which is the lack of prioritization and focus from these groups. So today, 90% of our boards believe that their organizations are making progress with diversity, but yet only 40% of them actually track the progress. So today, for example, if the head of HR provides an update on DNI initiatives to the board, it is typically in written form, and it does not contain reports of targeting bullying or abuse. So boards are not fully aware of what is actually happening in their organization. Organizations prohibiting focus on what really matters. So the three barriers, number one, we're hiring the right people into the wrong levels. We need to actually hire them into the tops of our organization. Number two, once within the organization, they're expected to conform um, to these outdated um, 
cultural norms, thus suppressing the very value they're bringing to the organization. And number three, our boards, C-suites and HR, the very people who are responsible for DNI really are hindering the progress because they aren't focusing on the things that really matter, removing these barriers. I can't believe some of the statistics you just said. It's crazy that these things are happening in 2021. Exactly right. And I think that was the aha moment for most people is they just could not believe. Everyone knows that something's happening in our organizations, that the people with sharp elbows are the ones making it to the top. But yet most of our, you know, every book that you read is about servant leadership. And so there's definitely this dichotomy that's occurring both outside and inside our organizations. Why is it that these bad bosses or the wrong kind of leaders are the ones that are being promoted and celebrated in organizations when they are being reported as being bullying or using toxic traits to get ahead? You know, that is that is such a great question. And it's a question that companies need to answer and focus on if they truly want to remove these barriers. So, you know, I I spend a lot of my social media posts are directed at this topic because it's the first thing that organizations need to get right to eliminate the main barriers in our workplace. You know, today, 75% of individuals rate their bosses good to poor. So there is an overarching issue with leadership. So two main reasons that these individuals find their ways into our coveted leadership positions. You know, number one, there's an adherence to these unwritten rules within our organizations. And I'll touch on that here in a second. Number two is the leadership selection process. So first, the unwritten rules of the organization, you know, those are really the rules that identify and promote the wrong people with the wrong values. So here's what I mean. Most organizations have created these published values, things like their leaders or servant leaders who put their people and clients first before themselves, or talk about the requirement of integrity and teamwork within their organizations. Unfortunately, less than 15% of companies execute these values on a daily basis. So what happens the other 85% of the time? Well, in most organizations, the actual value system is created by individual leaders who create their own set of rules or subcultures that benefit them and their values, which are typically the opposite of the ones posted on the company walls and in the employee handbooks. So these leaders are not your high performers. They typically exhibit these false leadership traits like gravitas and commanding a room are typically good friends with the boss or others in authority and quite honestly are poor leaders of people who are mostly focused on their own level of success but because hr lacks this infrastructure to monitor and control the value system these leaders have found this loophole and have created these subcultures allowing really for a free-for-all within organizational value systems. So that's number one. Number two, the selection process for leaders typically goes like this. So today's leaders select a few names of people to promote. They actively advocate maybe behind the scenes um, with, with their colleagues. And within the promotion meeting, these are the ones who typically get promoted. Who do these leaders pick and actively promote? People who exhibit the values that they have, not the company values. 
And worse yet, these people that they are promoting are typically not your high performers, women, or people of color. So the wrong leaders are occupying these coveted leadership positions, promoting leaders just like them, and supporting or actually suppressing the true high performers, the very people who can increase your shareholder value, exhibit great leadership, and will innovate your organizations to compete on this global scale. And the only way that companies can really get out of the cycle is to change the leadership selection process to a much more objective system that aligns with their company values and can and, and will hire women and diverse individuals at the top of the organization. In the whole third section of the book, I provide company executives in HR a step-by-step playbook on how exactly to redesign their companies for the future and give them the insight and the tools to select the right high-performing leaders. Typically, what would the characteristics of a high-performance leader look like in an organization? Another great question. And I absolutely love this question because you know, leadership really is the highest honor in the business world. And there have been so many books and expectations written about great leadership, and they mostly focus on one aspect, which is the people, which is an incredibly important component of leadership. But the higher you go, the more expansive your responsibility it's also important to show success in two other areas. So there's three main characteristics that I talk about that will help you identify your highest performers, your highest leaders today. So first and foremost, they must exhibit the highest character and integrity. That's first and foremost. It's a baseline selection criterion because if a leader achieves great results but lacks character and integrity, the results shouldn't matter within your organization. So I tease this concept out in the book and I show how one bad leader can permeate distrust, negative ROI, and taint your value system. Where on the other hand, a high-performing leader with character and integrity can lift an entire organization and its performance. Executives need to keep in mind that brand Brand equity is typically a top driver of both whether a consumer will purchase from you or whether a current customer will stay. So companies cannot afford scandal or bad publicity. So number one, character and integrity, first and foremost. Number two, they must drive the business forward and create value. So the characteristics that we really need most in order to do that is that executives and leaders need to be constant learners and apply what they've learned. You know, they don't need to be geniuses or have high IQs. In fact, companies that continue to require these types of IQ tests are using an outdated system because what is more valuable than IQ today is creativity. Creativity to identify opportunities, differentiation, new ideas, You know, the global marketplace is moving at such a rapid pace, and those companies that cannot adapt to the speed will be left behind. So the next, the the good next-gen leaders, you know, they'll be skilled at this, but the great leaders will be highly skilled at creating atmospheres on their teams and within their organizations where great ideas come from everywhere, 
where people are invited to lead their ideas that they bring to the table and that there's accurate credit appropriation. So number two, learn and apply. And number three, they must be great leaders of people. You know, the one true test of a great leader is to really to ask your people within your organization this one question. If you could work for anyone inside or outside this company, who would you want to work for? You know, leadership is a people business. And if the people aren't getting what they need to be successful individually and as a team, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Just thinking about it strictly from a business perspective, because today, 70% of employees are not working to their full potential, 70%. But if they work for a great leader, that number would go down to less than 20%. So for some businesses, that could mean the difference between profit and loss or whether they can truly compete on a global scale. So great leadership matters. That's amazing. Again, the statistics are so shocking. You'd think this would be a a more talked about thing, but it seems to be still quite niche. So we've talked about competitiveness a couple of times, and this is something that really interests me because it's a trait that some organisations will specifically ask about in job interviews or for to have it in their like person specifications. But how can organisations use this natural trait for success without it creating a toxic culture? You know, competitiveness is a great characteristic to have if it's pointed in the right direction and it's used for good. So what I mean by that is far too often we celebrate internal competition like it's a badge of honor, when in truth, it actually creates toxicity within our organizations and it leads to disengagement, unethical conduct, particularly when exercised by leaders as the means to maybe create friction between two people. They think if if they can get two people to compete, they're going to get the best output. Um, Or even departments, they pit departments against each other. That is such an old way to lead. um, And it's no longer effective. But if you direct your company or your competitors, people who are incredibly competitive outside your organization towards your company competitors, that's where the true value is found. So if you want to create these high-performing, diverse organizations, celebrate leaders that inspire teams to develop products and programs that create a competitive advantage for your company, not for them themselves. Because when you leverage a competitive individual in this manner, you're inspiring and developing others around them. You're directing, redirecting their competitive skills and creating true value for your organization. And it also becomes an example for others to follow. So a much healthier use of competition is to encourage individuals, leverage your competitive spirit with your true outward competitors, not your internal peers. So you recently posted on your LinkedIn, encouraging your followers to create a career freedom fund. And I really like this idea. And I was wondering if you could explain it in a little bit more detail to our listeners. Oh, I love this. So this this comes from obviously a a career in in finance, but marrying it with the information that I know about leadership and developing people. Because what I found is that more often than not, people will get stuck at some point in their career. They will work for a bad boss. They'll work within an organization, maybe where they're less than inspired every day. And the worst part is that they stay. 
and they waste years of an otherwise lucrative and powerful and happy career at these organizations where they don't feel valued. And most do it because they don't have the financial means to leave. So here's how the freedom, uh, the career freedom fund works. You set aside a set percentage or dollar amount from your paycheck, every, every paycheck into your fund. It can be a, a savings account, a mutual fund, really whatever you choose that is a safe investment. And then what you do is you create rules for yourself, guidelines as to how the dollars can be used to better you and your career. So for example, if you have an abusive boss at work and you need to leave the situation, or if you want to earn another degree, or you want to build a new skill, or, or you know, today's big thing is to hire a career coach, either for your current or your future role. Or maybe you want to go part-time for the first six months after your, your child is born. A career freedom fund provides you the freedom to make the right choice for yourself throughout your career. So my last question is kind of around if people are listening to this podcast and thinking, actually, this sounds like I've got a bad leader or I don't really enjoy my company culture. What are kind of some of the early warning traits that their organization might be toxic? And what should you do when you spot them? So Ellen, I have to tell you, this is the first time in all the podcasts that I've done that I've been actually asked this question. So I love this. And it, and it really does get to the heart of the book because too much too often an individual lives through an issue versus identifying the problem early, early on. And what that does is it, it elongates the toxicity. It eliminates your self-confidence. It allows the abuser to continue um, to really annihilate your career at that point. And so the key is to identify the problem early so that you can manage the situation. So let's talk specifics. So number one, identify the toxicity, the true toxicity before it starts. So first and foremost, be very selective as to where you go to work and where you lend your time and talent. Do your homework. You know, most toxic organizations market themselves one way, but play a very different game internally. So go to sites like Glassdoor, or if you're someone who believes in diversity or advocates for women in the workplace, research their board of directors and their C-suite. You know, because change starts at the top, and if they profess to be diverse, yet they have executive and board members that all look the same, diversity is not a priority for them, regardless of what they put in front. So that's number one. Be careful where you go to work. Do your homework. Number two, once you're in an organization, you know, every leader creates their own subcultures, which we talked about. And so I encourage um, all of those that I coach um, and, I, and I encourage this in the book as well, is to journal every night. Write down where your leaders spent their time and effort, how they spoke, who they spoke to. You know, it's really critical to absorb this baseline of how they work. And journaling is, is beneficial for so many different reasons but it will help you identify the culture, the subculture. It will help you determine how your skills and talents can be leveraged without compromising your own value system. And journaling is just a critical step in this process. And if you do start to experience a toxic situation, reading what you wrote 
will illuminate clues and help you provide self-direction. Journaling is absolutely critical. Number three, I would say watch and learn how things get done. You know, is it acceptable within your culture to speak over someone, which is an actual microaggression? Or do leaders, is it acceptable for leaders to talk behind others' backs or, you know, use character assassination or gaslighting? Is that just part of the game? And if so, that's going to give you an indication that it could potentially happen to you someday. Again, especially if you're a top performer or a woman or person of color, but men aren't immune either. So last point, what should you do when you spot them? You know, I spent a great deal of time in the book helping you diagnose what exactly the toxic engagement is and how you can professionally handle the situation. And, you know, one of the the common situations that I hear over and over and over is that someone is gaslighting someone else. And, you know, in those situations, the conversation typically starts off cordial. And then pretty soon, the pace of the conversation will accelerate. And then the other person starts playing back your statements with a different bent or with mistruths. And this could accelerate to them maybe being agitated or yelling or threatening you. And, you know, when you're in those situations, you get this fight or flight, right? You are in shock and disbelief that this is even happening because it seemingly comes out of the blue. And that is actually their intended result of the gaslighter. And what they're going for is to take you out of your comfort zone, to put you back on your heels. And to kind of spread the deceit even further. So again, the key here is to, number one, don't ever take the bait. Learn how to adjust in the moment in these situations and maintain your power and your self-confidence. That's number one. And number two, quickly realize that these individuals are doing this for a much higher strategy. This is just the tactic that they're using to take you off your game. But there's something else going on behind the scenes. Either they want to replace you with someone, maybe who is going to be much more loyal. Maybe they want to rotate you to a different part of the organization. Or maybe it's just a power play on their part. But there is something bigger picture going on that is encouraging them to exhibit this type of behavior. So again, remember, 100% of high performers, it's going to happen to you. 75% of women, it's going to happen to you. And 35% of men, it's going to happen to you. So again, manage the tactic, understand the bigger strategy that's happening, and you will maintain your confidence and you'll come out the other side even stronger than you did before. That sounds like great advice. And it seems like a perfect place to end the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure. It has been such a pleasure as well. Thank you so much, Ellen. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to Berta today. I would really recommend reading her book, which was Winning the Talent Shift, Three Steps to Unleashing the New High Performance Workplace, available at all good booksellers. If you'd like more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to subscribe to the Ambition Podcast. 